We pray that you would continue to keep our church uh, in the center of your will, uh, rooted in your word. I pray that this evening that we would have insight into your word from what we hear today and that you would uh, encourage us in that which is stable, uh, in your strength and in who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I've told some of you before who've heard a little bit more of my story that I have, I have a little bit of trouble in general believing that God is strong on my behalf. And I don't mean that I don't believe that um, from out of the scriptures or anything. I really, I really do um, believe the words that I read, and I really try to you know, own those for myself. Um, and I think I've intellectually accepted that God can do amazing things and, and miracles and incredible deeds. And I've even experienced things that I would say can't, can't be explained other than by the, the absolute power of God. Um, and I can see reasons why God would do incredible, powerful things. Uh, Nick, a couple weeks ago, shared that this word wonderful, when we read wonderful counselor, wonderful probably isn't the adjective for counselor. It's, it's a word that just means that our God is the God who does wonders, miraculous deeds. And I honestly agree. But on the most practical level, forgetting even the parting of the seas or making the blind see or anything like that for a second, on the most practical level, it's hard for me to believe that God is mighty for me in general. Um, I can see why. I can explain why if I look at my own story. Uh, back when I was in Little League, um, I was a, I was a pretty, pretty serious baseball player. There's some writings of uh, Andy the Child out there where I was planning on being a professional baseball player, that was my, that was my big plan. And I was, uh, at the time, it seemed kind of possible because I was one of the best pitchers in the league. I could throw really hard, basically, and, uh, and I was tall, and it seemed like I was doing very well. Um, so I, I went into, oh, I forget the year, but I, I went into one of the kind of critical years where it was starting to get a little more competitive and the teams were getting better. And I knew uh, not only was I one of the best pitchers on my team, I was one of the best pitchers in the league. But my family was the poorest family uh, on the team. And my, uh, my coach owned a sporting goods store. And he had kind of this idea, which was kind of a win-win in his mind. And our team would get better uniforms uh, through his sporting goods store. And he would get more sales. And as an owner of a retail store now, I kind of understand this thinking. He had this captive group that wanted to have better sporting goods. And he had the store. And he said, this, this could work. And so he pitched it to the parents that we could all have fitted hats and home and away uniforms and all this awesome stuff. And, and I knew I was excited about it. Um, and for some reason, I couldn't figure out why as the year began that I kept only playing one inning a game and I was always put in left field, even though I knew I was the best pitcher on the team. And the whole year went by and I just didn't, didn't really understand. And I figured out at some point that... What had happened, because I, I wrote a high school paper about this, about the end of my dreams, and when I was writing it, my mom told me what, what happened, and that's that the coach had demanded that they pay for these uniforms, and my parents couldn't pay. And so he told them, until they could pay, I wouldn't play. And he played me the bare minimum to where he wouldn't get in trouble with the league. And I became extremely angry at this coach. How could he do this to me? How could, he, how could he be such a jerk and just be all about money? 
And then as I grew up, I, I went to some counseling. Uh, I've done quite a bit of that in my life. And I had a child of my own, and somewhere I started to think a little differently. I, I was still wasn't happy with my coach, but one day my counselor asked, where was your father in all that? And I thought to myself, I would never let this happen to my kid. Like, if, if I found out that was happening to my kid, I would either convince the coach or I would somehow get the money or I would take my kid off the team and be like, you're going to have to play against this guy because he's better than... I mean, I would have... I would have done something, I think, to stand up for my kid. So when I look at my story of my earthly father, who, who was a good dad, but he wasn't mighty, in moments like this, he shrunk back and he kept his mouth shut. I can see why it's hard for me to believe that God, our father, will be mighty for me. So what about you? Maybe you kind of relate to my story. Maybe you have some similar experiences. Or maybe you have the opposite experience. Maybe somebody in your life was always stepping up and taking control and always had something to say and were always, was always fixing things. And maybe you loved that. Or maybe you hated that. But think, how does your story, your, your experience, shape your view of God? Do you feel like it's all on you? Or as if people aren't taking a stand and are weak? And how does God factor into all of that for you? Our series this last few weeks has been Christmas in chaos, as you know, and we've walked through this crazy year together. And as I, I think back on our year as a community of Christians, I think there are a number of indicators, I would say, that we don't believe our God is as mighty as we might say as we might intellectually assent to or claim. And how does that manifest? How do we see that? There's a lot of ways. I'll just share a few I've seen. These are specific ones we've seen, I think, this year. Um, we are deeply worried and afraid. We are deeply worried and afraid. As we've traversed these like situations that have faced us throughout this year, um, I have not run into anyone, and myself and my family included, who didn't become very worried and afraid about something. If you had to stay home, there were things that worried you, and, and you were afraid about staying home and other people having to stay home. If you had to get back to life, you were worried or afraid about that. Um, to, if you had to go back to work or something of that nature. Um, if there were race, race riots happening. Some people were worried or afraid of what was going to happen because of them. Others were afraid that they weren't going to achieve what they were supposed to achieve. We've been very worried and afraid. We've been trying to take control. I can think of a lot of phrases that I've heard and I've thought throughout this year. I will not do that. We cannot do that. They must do this, right? How could you do that? How could a Christian ever do that? So many ways we fought to maintain control. And it manifests in unrealistic demands, often asking others to stand in God's place and be more like they should be. We want the people in our lives to be better, to have the right views, to treat us right, to be more comfortable to have to stay home with, perhaps, to be the kind of people we 
who really meet the needs that we feel and anticipate the needs that we have and understand them. And often these demands are silent, but they're there. It manifests in our fear of vulnerability. We can't show weakness. We expose um, ourselves as wrong and we, we have to hide. We have to recoil if, if maybe we were wrong about this. When we don't know, we don't want people to know that we don't know, what will they think of us? We can't take the risk of being hurt. So we have to show ourselves strong and control the situation or avoid the situation. And all this is true, by the way, in our, in our community, in our little church. Most of us could name names if we were to look around our, the roles of our church, the screen of Zoom right now. We could name names of people we're uncomfortable with right now. And all of these things are the tips of icebergs. I was watching Frozen Planet uh, last week, and I saw this section about all the new icebergs being born, which isn't good, by the way, for you know sea levels and stuff. But the imagery was helpful that there are these giant glaciers sliding toward the seas, moving so slowly that they appear to not be moving at all until you hear them cracking, right? And they're so powerful, they carve canyons. And when they reach the sea, they don't have the rock and the earth underneath them, so they begin to break apart. And the pieces that break off, they said on this show, would dwarf the largest of man-made buildings. So these are, are chunks of ice, right? larger than the Sears Tower or whatever that one in the Middle East is that's even taller than the Sears Tower. These are larger, which is insane because I've stood below the Sears Tower and it's crazy. And they float off into the sea and all we see is the little top, right? But there's so much more underneath and that's true of our fears and feelings. They seem small, as if maybe they'll just melt away or we could yell them away or ignore them away, but there's far more under the surface of them. And they're born from the glacial effects of sin. And our scripture for the last four weeks has been Isaiah 9-6, in which we learn the four, really five titles that God gave us for his coming savior. The one who would be born as a child from a virgin and who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And those titles were wonderful. The one who does wonders. Counselor, the one who can give us perfect advice and wisdom. Mighty God, which we're discussing now. Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. We Christians believe that Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was raised for his perfect faithfulness to God the Father. And therefore, he was proven to fulfill God's promise to his people who believe. And therefore, all of these titles and the realities behind them belong to us in Christ Jesus. We receive the miraculous wonders of God. He is our perfect counselor. He is our everlasting father, not just a general one, but ours. He is our prince of peace, not just a general coming king, but ours. And of course, as we're saying tonight in Christ, He is our mighty God. So how so? I want to work out a few ways he is our mighty God. First, he bore our burdens, which 
you must be strong to bear the weight of our responsibility, for he represented all of humanity. He's entered in to be a stand-in for us. He had to live up to God's standards for us. He had to live perfectly for us, and that's a burden to bear. Not only that, he was condemned, though not guilty, and was made subject to an awful death sentence he didn't deserve, but we did. And he has borne our burden of guilt. And, and I know some of us find this hard to swallow, this idea that you deserved death. Even if we can say it as Christians, it doesn't seem accurate. It's this biblical theme that we have to grapple with, though, because in the garden... In Genesis, our ancient ancestors heard the very voice of God, which said, do not eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. And they ate, and now all of us die, okay? Why do we get death? Why do we deserve it? And the answer is because we commit the same sin. Adam and Eve, in wanting God's knowledge, wanted to be self-sufficient. They didn't want to have to rely upon God. They wanted to have what God has. They didn't want to trust in God. They wanted to be able to trust in something that they knew and could manage themselves. They didn't want to be out of control, trusting in one who was in control. They wanted to be in control, and they effectively rejected God as God, asserting themselves as like the Most High. Which, if you think about it, is satanic. And I don't mean that word, you know, as as a joke. Really. When you, as a Christian, hear that Satan and the demons, okay, the spiritual enemies of God, will be thrown into the lake of fire, has that ever struck you as unfair? Have you ever read the scriptures and thought, that's not fair? That's not just? That's not okay? I have never heard. A Christian, nor have I ever heard anyone at all suggest that the destruction of the enemies of God in the scriptures, they may or may not believe it, but nobody I have ever heard them say, this is not fair. And why don't we? Because they're the enemies of God. They do terrible things. Well, what is it that they do? What is their cardinal sin? 1 Timothy 3.6 probably probably points to it the most clearly. It's a simple little verse in which Paul is telling Timothy not to promote immature people in the church into leadership, okay? But he says this, because they would be tempted into conceit. And then he adds this little caveat, which is the reason that the devil was condemned. In our day, we only think of a death sentence as being legitimate if someone's committed the most heinous of acts, maybe the most heinous version of premeditated murder. And until even such acts are committed against us, we generally lean toward locking people up or having people rehabilitated. But the Bible, and I'm not speaking of how you should view capital punishment, I'm talking about guilt. The Bible's story paints this iceberg picture for us that our rebellion, doing things our own way, taking responsibility for only ourselves and not our neighbor, acting as gods to ourselves is like the tip of an iceberg when it comes to our relationship with God. And underneath the waterline is this massive truth that we live and act and believe that we don't want a God. We don't want 
a mighty God for sure. We want a God that affirms us, that gives us what we want, that allows us to be who we want to be, who justifies our desire. And effectively, if he does not do those things, he will be dead to us. We will not listen. We will not bow. We will not follow. We'll say, no thanks. And it's conceit. It's utter arrogance. It's treachery. It's betrayal. It is not love. It is hate of God. And by extension of our neighbor, because we, when we are so self-absorbed that we cannot relate and bow before God, how could we ever serve and wash the feet of somebody who is our equal, truly? So when Jesus suffered on a cross under the accusation of blasphemy by the Jews, claiming that his claim to be God was a lie, and being a false king under Rome, who said there's no, Ro- or no king but Caesar, it's under the same accusations that we place upon him ourselves when we treat him as if he's not our God or king and assert ourselves instead. They call our day, our people, us, expressive individualists. You know what that means? I am me. And I am most me when I express myself most deeply. There is no God in that way of thinking, and we are all shaped by it. Which is why Peter in his first sermon to the would-be Christians said, this Jesus who you crucified, and do you realize by the thousands of people he was talking to at that first sermon, that most of them didn't actually physically crucify him. And they may have been a little torn on how they felt about it, but he said, You crucified him, and now he has become both your Lord and Christ, your King and anointed one. And to to accept his grace, they had to accept that he had borne their guilt for killing him. So if we commit the same sins as the archenemy of Christ, And then we, though we're not at his crucifixion, reject him as God and king practically daily in the ways that we live and we push him out, let alone the ways that we directly rebel, which we do, then indeed we deserve the burden of death that he instead bore for us. Jesus is mighty God and that he bears our heavy burdens. Not only that, he fights our spiritual battles. Look, I know this idea of spiritual warfare, depending on how you grew up, might be a strange idea. For some, it's easy to accept. For some of us, it sounds a little insane, and we have some weird memories surrounding it. But how many of us can at least acknowledge that the violence and the battles of this life typically begin within the heart and the mind and the spirit? Think of this year. Most, the most dramatic death we probably watched this year on television, George Floyd. Think about it. Then violence broke out, right? And we wonder, why is this happening? Where is this coming from, some of us? Some of us knew exactly where it was coming from. But we know, don't we, that there have been lurking issues. This didn't erupt out of nowhere, This wasn't an isolated moment. 
There have been lurking problems, evils, festering wounds. And from time to time, something happens in the world that causes it to explode, to break out into visible reality. But these are not new problems. These are not false issues. They're not just fabrications. These are deep, lurking, inward, spiritual evils that then explode outwardly into our world. And this is true of all of our spiritual battles, the sins we commit, the anger, the fear, the avoidance. They're symptoms of spiritual realities in all of our hearts. And the scriptures say we aren't merely wrestling against flesh and blood. That's our temptation, to wrestle only with flesh and blood. And we do wrestle with flesh and blood, right? When it bubbles up to the surface, when it breaks above the waterline, we do. And lives are lost and things are destroyed. But our deepest battles are indeed under the surface and they cause the outbreak. Often because we've let them fester too long. We haven't addressed them under the waterline. So when they burst forth and show themselves, we're surprised. In Ephesians 6, Paul, after instructing people how to be married and children, how to obey their parents and bond servants, how to show their temporary master's respect. And don't those all seem like kind of simple things to do, right? These are like the basics, like get along at work and at home. And then he goes on to say this. Why? Why does he give those instructions? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Why do you work on your most basic relationships? Because <laughs> all the things that make those difficult have to do with these deep spiritual realities. And then he goes on to instruct us to put on God's armor, which is what Christ is always clothed in, implying that God alone is mighty enough to withstand spiritual turmoil, and we have to clothe ourselves in what he provides by his grace in order to do it. It's not a checklist of how to be the best in the world. It's a reminder to put on Christ, his word, his spirit, his righteousness, all things that belong to him, his gospel of peace. Christ gives us what we need and he intercedes for us. He stands between us and God's holiness. This is another way in which he's mighty He is the one standing between the wrath and the holiness and the just judgment of God because of his grace, and he battles on our behalf. Listen to Romans 8. This is how you live in the strength that God provides, is you believe this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not only... who who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding or praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. 
No, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is our mighty God because he fights with his people engaging in our inner battles, is what this says. This is why when you press deeper into your faith, by the way, your life doesn't just get easier. It often becomes harder because Jesus is at work inwardly interceding, breaking down barriers and strongholds we often don't realize we have that are alienating us from God and destroying our souls and destroying our relationships. And finally, God promises, though it seems slow in coming, that he will put things right here in our actual world, that one day he'll return in might and power to rule over creation in justice and peace and righteousness. Probably one of the most, one of the simplest and most beautiful ways this has been explained kind of out to pop culture is the way C.S. Lewis imagined this with Aslan the lion, right? The rightful king of Narnia who was killed by the evil that made it winter all the time, the evil that turned the Narnians against one another, but who overcame and would bring back harmony and peace. And we love those stories because we, like the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, live in a broken and war-torn world. And we can't go on without hope. Hope anchored in a God who is powerful and has a plan, under whom justice and truth and love actually exist, and one who will actually get involved. And in Christ, we know he got involved and remains involved. He came first to bear our burdens. Now he also fights our spiritual battles with and for us, which assures us of the hope that he'll return and make things right. This word mighty God is El Gibor in Hebrew, and many commentators say it must mean victorious warrior who accomplishes what only God can do. And we haven't seen all his victories, but we Christians can see that he overcame death himself. And we believe his promise that he will not leave us so we can take heart and keep fighting because he has overcome the world. Now, sometimes God gives us little victories in our lifetime, and those are beautiful things. They're little shadows, and we get to taste his sweetness. That year, my coach didn't let me play. Interestingly, we won the championship. And interestingly, with two outs in the ninth inning, the power hitter of the other team got up, and he hit a towering fly ball to guess where? Left field, where Andy Littleton had been put in for his one inning of the game. And everyone gasped, and I ran out there and positioned myself, and caught it, and got the game ball, and I was the MVP. And uh, it kind of felt good. But the truth is that that year still pretty much demoralized me, honestly. 
in regard to becoming a baseball player, which was my dream, by and large, it didn't feel like God had fought my battles. I got this little moment at the end, right? That's all I got. And over and over again, I've had tough years. And I can look back now and see, you know, benefits, even gifts, even ways that God was being mighty on my behalf. But it's important to note that all these attributes of God that we've talked about, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, these are all at work at the same time. There were times when God wasn't just being mighty for me, he was being a counselor to me. He was working on the inward issues of my heart, and he didn't necessarily give me a victory that I wanted. There were times he was being a father to me who disciplined me, who, you know, actually, as the scriptures say, he, he disciplines us because he loves us so much. There were times he was not giving me what I wanted at all. And I know many of you have had tough years too. Maybe not just this year, maybe a string of them. But I want us to ask this question of ourselves. How will we respond to this Savior, who God has promised to be a mighty God come in the flesh, despite the difficulties, despite the fact that sometimes he comes to us as a counselor, and sometimes he comes to us as a father in discipline as well as in love? And I don't mean what will we say we believe. I mean, how will we live practically in this promised hope? That's the question, right? When we're afraid, who will we run to? When others fail us, who will we anchor ourselves in? When we face adversity, who will we trust? When we lose everything that seems dependable, who will we depend on? Even more importantly, not all of us are having a terrible time right now. What if you have the illusion of security without him? What if 2020 was great for you and 2021's looking up? When you're killing it and it seems like other people are failing and you're doing just fine, sometimes those are the times of deepest temptation when we need to be most aware of the mass under the waterline. We don't think we need a mighty God because we think we're doing very well. Those are the times we may not realize what we're about to collide with. We might be unaware of the damage that we can do. And we might be unaware of the ways in which, in which we crucify Christ publicly by acting as if we do not need him. This year, 2020, has ripped the veneer of safety and self-sufficiency off for many of us. 2021, the year, by the way, does not magically solve this. I've seen all of these posts, right? I don't know if any of you see these that are just like, you know, good riddance 2020. Like, what, what do you think is going to change? You think the issues that came up in 2020 are gone? There can't be another virus? There can't be other, like, riots in the streets? Of course there can so we can resolve to be better people, and maybe we'll feel like we do a good enough job, and maybe we won't. We can hope the vaccine fixes everything, that new strains of COVID don't cause problems with that, that the impending economic reckoning of everything that's happening doesn't affect us. We can hope for that. I hope it helps. We can hope a new administration in the White House brings healing, as it's promising, right? Right? And that people will chill out and forget these deeper divisions. 
from the last year. Except remember, these divisions were born under previous administrations and hadn't gone away this year. Because none of those hopes are anchored in our mighty God. As I'm explaining them, none of them even sound reasonable. Yet we're trying to believe them, right? God has promised us one great light in the darkness. In Isaiah, and ever since. He is the one who does wonders. He alone is our perfect counselor who can get to the heart of the issues that we have. He alone is our everlasting father who can tell us we're, we're important, we're seen, we're beautiful, but also can discipline us in love. He alone is our prince over a government of perfect peace. And he alone can bring to bear all the power and hope and strength and comfort and security we need from a mighty God mixed perfectly with all of his other attributes. As we end this year and enter another, anchor your hearts. Join me in trying to anchor our hearts in Christ, who died to be mighty for you and save you sure from your circumstances, but ultimately, ultimately from your sin that's made you an enemy of his, even though all you were trying to do was save yourself. Anchor yourselves in no one but him. I want to pray with you. We're going to take a moment of confession just to let that sink in. Even just pray, pray for that now. Examine your hearts and ask this question, what is it that I'm hoping is going to fix things? What am I hoping is strong enough for me? And frankly, if you can't renounce it, renounce it and cling only to Jesus. After the silence, we're going to sing together. Giving is always in the back here at church or online. That's how we take care of one another. That's how we support this community, and it's important. And then though we're not taking the Lord's Supper physically, we are, because we are coming to Christ alone. He is the bread of life. He is our drink. He is our wine of celebration. That's to say he is our hope. So feast on him even now as we pray. I'm going to pray for us and leave two minutes of silence for you. Father, I, I pray that we would see you as the, our everlasting Father, our perfect, eternal Father. I pray that these attributes we've read about that were proclaimed to be your attributes 700 years before you came and that you lived out, really, when you were here, and that you live out in heavenly places now, I pray that by your spirit we would believe them and experience them, that you would even encourage us a little bit closer to you this next year, that we would lean deeper into you than we do in any other hope. Please help us. On our own, we trust in everything else. Mostly, we trust in ourselves. Forgive us. Bring us back. 
Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Would you purify our hearts and wash us clean again in Christ? Would you remind us of our perfect status in him because he's borne all of our burdens? And because of Christ, would you hear our prayers?